Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 26, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. For the full hour, Jacqueline Keeler, Adine Ihantonwan, Dakota, writer and activist, creator of Hashtag Not Your Mascot, will recontextualize the United States relationship with Native peoples. We'll start with, the United States is still a colony, and do our very best to reach where we all are presently. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Jacqueline Keeler, a Diné Ihangtoan, Dakota writer and activist. Her family is of the clan of the Towering House. Her first ancestors descended from Changing Woman, a special lineage which they prize. Jacqueline is editor of the anthology Edge of Morning Native Voices Speak for the Bear's Ears, Tiospe Now. She's welcome anytime to change how I'm saying these things. Also at her Good Men Project and Pollen Nation, as well as contributor to Red Rock Stories, Three Generations of Writers Speak on Behalf of Utah's Public Lands, and Telesur English. Her latest posting is in Indian Country Today, quote, debating Bolivia, a tweet, silence, and then Bernie Sanders, end of the quote of that of that installment there. Jackie has also contributed to The Nation, Salon, Truth Out, New York Times, Daily Beast, Mother Jones, Quartz, and let us not forget Dartmouth Alumni Magazine. She's appeared (laughs) on PRI's The World, BBC, MSNBC, and Democracy Now! among other platforms there. She's been awarded Best Environmental Coverage and New California Media Award. Jackie completed her bachelor's degree in sociology film studies at Dartmouth College and her master's of fine arts in creative writing at Pacific University. Recently returned from travel in the Dakotas, Jackie comes to us today from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jacqueline Keeler. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll begin, as I I opened uh, the introduction before the break, the United States is still a colony we're rolling this all back, folks, to the original sin, separatist Puritans, or as some people call them, religious fanatics, plunked down along the eastern seaboard. So for context's sake, let's talk about the paperwork that entitled those Puritans to establish and dwell in the Plymouth Colony. Yeah, um, well, so, you know, the uh, they, they had sort of settled on the wrong place. Um, they had drifted further north, I think, than they had expected. And uh, But this was all part of the original Jamestown colony um, area, um, and because it went all the way up that far north from Virginia, the Virginia colony. Yeah, they um, basically had a, um, an agreement with the Crown, the British Crown, to, to have, uh, the, you know, they formed a joint stock company, and they, they had the right, basically, to rule the area. They were actually sort of under the Virginia colony compact. So, But it wasn't like this. these were symmetrical partners in a business transaction. It was decided over in Europe what these people were going to take over. Yeah, well, there was this uh, concept of doctrine of discovery. Right, and, right, uh, exactly. We're going to talk and, about yeah, that. Yeah, the... Yes, so uh, so the Doctrine of Discovery basically was, it's interesting because, um, you know, it wasn't a Protestant thing. So it's hard to say that it really applied to the thinking of, you know, colonists coming from England, which was a Protestant country. It was, a, this, this doctrine was applied later uh, and devised to undergird U.S. claims to Indian land after the Revolutionary War. Once the U.S. was established and, and they were developed uh, by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, uh, in the late 1820s and early 1830s. So uh, the Doctrine of Discovery rightly refers to an attempt to uh, so uh, to position the United States as having superior claims to the land than the indigenous nations that were already here. So uh, in a case 
a very early case, Macintosh versus, uh, <laughs> but they, uh, Basically, uh, he had to decide, uh, the Chief Justice Marshal, which white man had the better title to the land. One had received it through a U.S. state, and one had received it through purchasing uh, the rights directly from the uh, tribe. And so uh, he had to determine which was the better title, because they had title to the exact same plot of land. And he actually, you have to imagine that he was a, a Chief Justice of a very new country. It had very little case law to call upon. So he utilized a uh, case law from around the world. And uh, and so in this case, he turned to actually Vatican law, right? Catholic yes. doctrine. And in the 1492, and then also later in the 1550s, there were two papal bulls that were, uh, you know, issued by the Pope, by two different popes, and uh, basically stating that only uh, discovering countries discovering Christian countries, basically countries who, you know, owed their loyalty to the Pope, right, um, had rights to land. So basically once they landed and they set up their flag and they issued their proclamation, then all of the fee simple title of the land, um, if these people were not Christian, right, would then revert to them just automatically. And, and so this, this doctrine discounts the right of indigenous people to have any title, just only the title of occupancy, which animals have, uh, occupancy and use. And so uh, and this is still the active law in the United States and is the basis of U.S. claims to our lands. Uh, it was cited as recently as 2005 by uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So let's go. I want to roll back, and um, there were some interesting elements to the doctrine of discovery for everybody's clear understanding that there's the contiguity that uh, and we're going to quote i think it's from john marshall chief justice john marshall's 1823 ruling is under discovery europeans claimed a significant amount of land contiguous to and surrounding their actual discoveries and settlements in the new world and and that was the term was used the terrace nullius that land had to be occupied used in european fashion or it's considered vacant so there's another stipulation that has huge consequences. And then, not as you said, non, the, another tenet was non-Christian peoples were not deemed to have the same rights to land sovereignty and self-determined uh, nation as Christians. And that goes rolls right up into the present. So um, I just want to go back with the Cl- Plymouth Colony. I mean, it's still playing out. There was Saturday a protest where the Mashpees and the Wampanoags were protesting the president the White House is rescinding the 2015 federal designation holding land and uh, trust on behalf of the tribe, which meant it, they need the sovereignty in order for them to go ahead and develop a casino. So this this is playing out. This doctrine continues, as you say. Did you want to bring out any other elements that uh, I didn't cover in this uh, discovery, doctrine discovery? Yeah, I would say I would really focus on the fact that um, you know this was something this was an argument devised by the United States to, to give it primary fee simple title to land, and, and this is a title that most Americans enjoy to this day. I know. You know so- and, and so it's something that if you own land in the United States, you are actively participating in the um, enforcement of this doctrine. And that's why you could say the United States is still a colony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, and it's really, you know, no other people in the world, um, I think only three countries use this doctrine, that'd be Canada, the United States, and Australia, right? And, um, and basically, um, we are, the indigenous peoples of Canada, the United States, and Australia are unique in the sense that we do not have the basic human right to title to our land. It's not recognized legally and that, that's by, as- by these countries. Which determines everything. <laughs> yeah, and, everything. and you notice they're all countries coming from the British Empire, and so these are, and they are all colonies, basically, functionally speaking. So, let's talk now about the the Missouri River, where uh, that the whole catchment area. It's under the jurisdiction of the Army Corps. That Army Corps of Engineer maintains sovereignty. That in in their, I mean, does it come directly from the Doctrine and Discovery? It's that claim to the all of the catchment area of the Missouri? Um, but it actually dates back to the development of the dams along the Missouri River in the, in ni- the late 1940s and 1950s. Okay. There was a series of dams that were developed through the Picks Loan Agreement uh, that passed Congress. And after the Tennessee Valley Authority 
uh, development in which a lot of white farmers were impacted. Um, they didn't, Congress didn't want to get white farmers in South Dakota um, and Montana um, upset, so they chose to put the dams um, and dam and, and flood um, almost entirely native lands up and down the Missouri. And so they built, I think, about five dams. And so this is where a lot of the claims come from uh, for the Army Corps, because while they were building the dams, they, they took the land. Um, my own family, um, my great-grandfather, you know, farmed in the White Swan Village there uh, on the Missouri River on the Yankton Sea Reservation, and that was all um, taken um, in 1948, I believe. And they actually did not pay uh, people for their land, um, at least at White Swan, and, um, but they started charging them rent right away. And so, of course, these were uh, not these were not communities that used cash. You know, they were farmers, and, um, and so they were the cashless society. So they didn't they couldn't come up with the cash to pay rent on their own land, especially when they had not been paid for that land. And there was not really a settlement until 2011, like 50 years later, over 50 years. Wow. So, yeah. What was the the explanation for there will be no purchase of this property? Um, they just, uh, the Army Corps just simply didn't care and didn't really know, didn't know the law. They didn't know anything. They just, they just took it because they wanted to. The United States is still a colony. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the, this is our through line, folks, that just taking it. It's, uh, and this is also the area where the, there is the challenge to, therefore, the Army Corps and then the U.S. federal government, challenge of sovereign claim at the standing Rock Reservation, and the that there during the well, let's talk about what's going on leading into that rescinding of that claim, and uh, what the complications are uh, with the. I mean, it, it has this whole cascading effect of the right to property, and then the consequences of the development of the Dakota Access Pipeline through there. I mean, it's it's. They're, it's offensive in every way one can slice this. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, if you so the treaty, you know, we often talk about Native people and treaties, right? And, right. You know, honor the treaties, and, and I think a lot of Americans hear that that phrase and they don't really know what it means, you know. And right. uh, and you know, treaties are international law. They are only entered into by sovereign nations, and and our treaties are, have been ratified by the U.S. Senate. And so the Senate doesn't ratify treaties with anyone but other sovereign nations. So the 18, uh, the, Fort, the two Fort Laramie treaties that are often cited at Standing Rock um, were ratified by the Senate with the Great Sioux Nation. When was that? Which includes, uh, you know, the bands that are on Standing Rock Reservation and also many other tribes, including the Yankton Sioux uh, Reservation. And there's a, quote-unquote, Sioux or Dakota and Lakota Reservations that you find in the Dakotas and Minnesota and uh, Montana and Nebraska and even going up into Canada, these reservations are all islands left in the storm of the Great Sioux Nation. Right? And so the treaty lands were uh, not ceded, uh, but they were they are, they are presently being occupied. They're under military occupation. Uh, and that military occupation was made visible by Standing Rock. And the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe invoked the treaty, um, the Fort Laramie Treaty, in the mildest terms possible, they simply demanded meaningful consultation on the building of the pipeline in their unceded territories just north of the reservation boundary near Cannonball, uh, north of the, Har- um, of the Cannonball River. The actual treaty boundaries go all the way up to the Hart River, which is in Bismarck, right? That's so way up all of north. that land between Bismarck and the north of the Standing Rock Sea Reservation is all unceded territory. It's, it's a territory that under international law, the U.S. has no legal right to. It only enjoys right to it through military means. And so, and also the, uh, the treaty, the Fort Lamar Treaty, is negotiated to the east bank of the Missouri River. So that means that the crossing itself should be under the jurisdiction of the Great Sioux Nation. So the, uh, but the Army Corps claims the right um, to do this because of the building of the dam. But there was a, a dam there near Cannonball that was built and um, formed that lake, Lake Oahe. And, um, and so it's in this way they lay claim to, um, to that. And they had actually submerged the original Cannonball village and then built it further up um, on a bluff. 
So uh, they didn't do that for our village of White Swan. They simply flooded it. And but yeah, that's uh, those are the circumstances that they are um, living under, and in which they're trying to claim, uh, you know, a, a meaningful right to talk about what development's going to take place in their environment and is going to impact their communities. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Jacqueline Keeler at Diné, and pronounce please for me the other other tribe I'm stumbling on. And she's a writer and activist piercing through the mythologies that are surrounding this week's holiday for some. And we're talking about this, the Missouri River. That is, that's a very, that's where your family comes from. And you've been, that's where you were just in, you were in South Dakota last week? Yeah, I just came back on Sunday. Yeah, I was um, on my dad's reservation, actually in my dad's hometown of Lake Andes in, um, in the Yankton Sea Reservation. Um, and after the, our village at White Swan was flooded, um, a lot of the community moved up to Lake Andes. And so I, I want to talk about that specifically after. I just want to just stay in a few more general categories, is that I talked about the original sin where the separatist Puritans arrived, but I think the next sin would be the way in which that arrival and how these how the sovereignty has been denied Native peoples, how that's been portrayed in American history books. And I... I even I'm looking through that that mythology continues. I look through uh, advanced placement American history test prep material that synthesizes this mythology. You know, I mean, that's we're keeping it intellectually very dishonest all the way through an education. And so I I'm not sure other than where I've picked up lies. My teacher told me it's everything your American history textbook got wrong that uh, James Lowen had written. I'm I don't know what you want to say about how we're going to make up this difference in the portrayal in our American history lessons. Yeah, I have a book coming out uh, this in 2020 called Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Occupation. Yes, I've seen that. And I go into this quite a lot, quite a lot of detail. Um, I, in 2016, I started out uh, in January, and I live here in Oregon, covering the uh, take the Bundy takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And, um, and from the, I covered it from the perspective of the Burns Paiute tribe. And then I ended 2016 in December, once again in the snow, Standing Rock uh, amongst my own people. And so I compare the two standoffs and use them as a way to understand our present political situation, our political standoff that we have in the United States today. Um, from two very different lenses, and um, but I do uh, examine to a great deal uh, degree uh, the uh, history of the United States, uh, the kind of things that the Bundys are are referencing uh, when they talk about common law and they talk about the rights of sheriffs, uh, you know, the uh, the right to the commons, the closing. All they're they're actually a lot of what they're talking about refers to their own English history of uh, coming going back to the um, the enclosure acts in England and and uh, the removal of the um, population uh, from the countryside into uh, industrial cities like Manchester and Liverpool. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's quite extensive. I mean, it's yeah. We, a lot of the language that was used in the Revolutionary War in the United States references. Of course, the um, the English Civil War. I mean, John Locke is coming out of that um, experience. And uh, but I mean, what's interesting about uh, the Revolutionary War is that I really take apart a lot of the propaganda around it. Um, you know, one, it was thought to gain access to Indian lands. King George III, after the end of the French and Indian War, here we call it the French and Indian War. In Europe, they call it the Seven Years' War. Right. And it was actually started a war. A war it was, it's also called World War Zero. It's the first world war. And it was actually started in western Pennsylvania um, when um, a, a Virginia you know, military outfit led by uh, George Washington, a young George Washington, um, murdered a, uh, a French diplomat. Wow. And this set off World War Zero. And this doubled the uh, the debt, uh, the, the the national debt of both France and Britain, and um, and this is why after, at the end of that war, King George III agreed to uh, not allow the colonists, the English colonists, to cross the Appalachian Mountains. 
that they were forbidden to expand west of the Appalachian Mountains. This was called the 1863 Proclamation Line. And so this is, if you read the, um, the Declaration um, of Independence, they reference this quite a bit and, and, and how King George III had betrayed them and taken sides with the, you know, the Indians, and they call us um, terrible names. <laughs> and, uh, and, mm. so, uh, and so really it was, the goal was to gain access to these lands, and, and many of the Founding Fathers were um, land speculators. I mean, they, they belonged to different land companies, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, uh, uh, George Washington, um, all of these folks. And many of these folks were some of the wealthiest people in the world at the time. It'd be like having a revolution started by Bezos and Bloomberg. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's bound to succeed in a way that other revolutions don't. And that, and that kind, of, it kind of gives you an, an insight into the stability that they were able to achieve, um, even when um, there were a lot of um, protests like the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, so uh, afterwards... But, um, but, yeah, the goal of the United States was always land acquisition. When its mother country uh, didn't want to pursue that to the same degree, um, these extremely wealthy men then revolted and then gained access to all this wealth. Jackie, where, what, what doctrine, what was the basis for the taking on the other side of the Appalachians, though? Was, is there, was there a formal one, or was it just, it was well, it, just it, a, a... It does go to these compacts, uh, okay. you know, you know, the British crown, or the English crown at the time, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, she could not afford to fund uh, colonization exploration. So she, while the development of the first, that was already happening, but the development of early um, corporate structures called joint stock companies in London. And these, uh, the, you know, the, the, her subjects would pool their money together and then be able to, to fund these um, very um, chancy um, sort of... Uh, Things. And, and, and these well, joint stock companies were given governmental powers. I really sort of, I draw, I, I actually mentioned this in, uh, in Edge of Morning as well, but okay. when I was covering the Keystone Pipeline protests, I talked to a number of farmers and ranchers in South Dakota and Nebraska, and they were, this was like 2013, 2014, and they were utterly shocked that the U.S. government had given a Canadian company, TransCanada, who was building the Keystone XL pipeline, you know, powers of eminent domain over their land, governmental powers, you know. But I was looking at them and I was thinking, don't you know the origin stories of this country? You know, I mean, uh, many states were started as joint stock companies, as corporate entities, and given governmental powers by the crown. News just in, everybody. (laughs) White, uh, white five-fingered creatures, right? <laughs> so, wow. So, and this this is going to be something we can all really bone up on with the your the standoff. What's the full title going to be, Jackie? Uh, it's a standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Occupation, Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Land. So it's it's on Amazon. You can pre-order it on Amazon. Well, I'm going to send people to their favorite independent book dealer. But no, I, we're, I'd yeah. like to be sure that we'll get you back on when that book is out and we can explore that and assign chapters and do all kinds of things with that. It's um, And I remember you talking a little bit about that at the, the Salt Lake City meeting where I, I got to meet you. Yeah. Fine. Oh, that was great. So, well... I want to go in a lot of different directions. I guess one, like an, a recent installment with uh, Sunday's New York Times, the the writer Viet Thanh Nguyen. Do you know him, by the way? No. Okay, so uh, I'm really hoping the two of you can meet. He had an editorial in the last Sunday's New York Times, and I want to just s- sort of give a quote from him that deals with w- what's the power struggle currently going on. For some white people, I'm quoting him, for some white people, the transition from majority to minority is frightening, perhaps because they fear what this country has done to people of color will be done to them. This zero-sum vision of a racial battle over limited resources is born from white guilt at best and white supremacy at worst. This original sin's legacy is still with us because we never atoned for it, much less really acknowledged it. White supremacy justified colonization and slavery, the slaughter of the natives and the theft of their land, westward expansion of the frontier, and the seizure of half of Mexico. So it's true, yeah. So there, it must, 
be an irony that takes a great deal. It's a toxic irony for you to hear when you see uh, right-wing activists that are talking about not being replaced. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I first started addressing this in 2000, well, 2014 when I wrote about the about Clive and Bundy's claims to ancestral rights uh, in the Nation magazine. And, uh, but um, I would say that uh, the problem is structural. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not enough simply to identify it. Uh, we, we actually have to structurally change it. When I talk about the U.S. still being a colony, I am talking about a, a vast colonial structure. And, and of course, the, the stories we tell, the history we tell about our about the American history, it is meant to encode that, to support it. In my book, Standoff, I talk about, and, and in my lectures I give about how the U.S. is still a colony, I, I point to the origin stories of this country. And, and, of course, Jamestown is a much better origin story, more accurate origin story than uh, Plymouth Rock, uh, because, of course, it was Jamestown was completely about profit. Um, you know, they even chained um, some of the colonists to their beds to make them work, to make more profit for the investors in London. You know, and um, it, it's uh, but the origin story of this country is a colonial one, and 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 a colony is always based on profit. It's going to other people's lands, you know, exporting the wealth as quickly as possible to their ruling class. That's the whole definition of a colony and a colonist. And, and it's really, uh, you can use this to predict what a colony will do, right? So, so the U.S. Is, is still functionally a colony. And, and, and another comparison um, is the origin story of an, of an indigenous people, right? And yes. I worked hard to find one that was concise enough to compare directly to that of a colonist. And I found one, actually, in my, my grandmother's cousin uh, was Vine Deloria Jr., he was a Lakota historian uh, from Standing Rock. She was enrolled at Standing Rock. And, um, and he wrote a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. That's really well known. It's an Indian manifesto. Uh, it came out in 1969, I think. And I found this in his book, um, For This Land. And uh, he defines a people. You know, many Native people, their word for themselves is the people, right, with a capital P. And, uh, and he says a people have their origin story in a meeting with a sacred being who is a manifestation of the land itself, right? Yeah. And in this meeting, they are given their original instructions and, and, and agreements with not only the sacred being, but all the people of the land who are already there. And that would be, you know, um, you know the, the people being the, the animals, the, you know, everything that already is there, the plant life. And, and I would say that this is an agreement to a specific place on Earth. It's not the entire Earth. Right. Um, And so my grandfather, my Lala, used to say, we were not Dakota until we met the white buffalo calf woman. Right. And when we met the white buffalo calf woman, then we became Dakota. Before that, we were something else. So this is our this is us becoming a people of the Great Plains, meeting the white buffalo calf woman. You know, she is, of course, the manifestation not only of the Great Plains, but of the Buffalo Nation and our relationship with with them. And, And she gave us the type the Trumpa, with which we pray, and our sacred ceremonies. And, and at this point, we became a people of the plain. And, and we had rules to live by. We weren't just given, you know, complete dominion over the land. And, and because the space is d- definite, it's not like a corporation which can move from place to place around the world and not pay, not be concerned of the outcomes, you know. Uh, right. so, it's, right. uh, so we are tied to the land uh, we are accountable to the land, and we have very, vastly different outcomes because of it. And, and, and you can see the outcomes of colonialism in the present issues that are looming over us, from climate change to, exactly. to the constant threat of nuclear winter. So, the, yeah, there's and, two uh, tracks. There's the, the corporate track of the colonial model, and then the I want to call it the sustainable model, which are the Native peoples' cultural ethic in, in, in how to live. I mean, and we, I, I, every time I go to an environmental resource management conference, they, the Native American contingent says, we've got this. Let us help. Let us re- manage these resources because of the, the utter disaster coming down on this planet. So it's, um, it's, there's I, the two I, I tracks. You just laid it know, out. Um, these are algorithms, right? Think of them as algorithms. You, know, you have an wow. algorithm. 
and um, and an algorithm, you know, like a series of if then statements, then creates outcomes. So you have a colonial algorithm, and that algorithm will only produce a certain outcome. It's really hard to modify it. And then wow. you have an indigenous algorithm which produces other outcomes. Um, you know, the question I often pose to my audience is, like, okay, you're, you, consider, you consider yourself a moral person, a decent person, you know, what with, and, but you're a colonist. You are a colonist, right? right. Um, and uh, so what would ethical colonialism look like? There you go. I was wanting to get to that. We can do that now. <laughs> what yeah. does it look so, like? I mean, it's a question I pose because one of the things that I think is really vital is to change, to get beyond the propaganda and to begin to change our relationship and, and to understand the structure in which we live in a way in which we can make effective decisions, effective choices. If we only, if we only use the propaganda that you know, the Founding Fathers created, we will never come upon the answers we need. And so we need to maybe, you know, change our perspective. You know, I think of white supremacy like a house, right? It's a house you live in. You don't even realize it's a house. You think it's the entire world, right? So you look outside a window, you see a, you see a framed sort of, you know, um, landscape, and you think that's all there is to see. But, you know, you need to get out of that house. You need to actually realize it's a house, for one thing, and then to be able to see other perspectives. And I think this is, you know, being someone who is from a marginalized perspective in America, yes. this is one of the things that you have, is you're able to, to perceive the house in a way that is much more objective and to see, its, to see its parameters, which are invisible to people who live within it. And so, um, but yeah, I think, you know, we think that change, you know, racism was solved when Obama became president, but, uh, but you can see that Standing Rock happened during the Obama presidency, you know, Native people were bitten by dogs, uh, you know, sprayed uh, for five hours straight in, in um, sub-freezing temperatures in North Dakota at night with water, you know, by the police, with using water uh, hoses, and all kinds of things were done to Native people under the Obama administration. Right, you know? right. Uh, and, uh, and the issue is that uh, you, can be, you can be driving the car, the machine, but you have to know what are you driving. You, know, you can put Obama in the driver's seat, but what is he driving? Is, is he driving, you know, a, a, a race car? Is he driving a, you know, combine wheat harvester? Do you know what I mean? And if he's driving a combine wheat harvester, it's going to harvest that wheat. You know, and so that's what I'm saying. It's a systemic issue. You know, uh, we won't solve it simply by, you know, uh, we, we will ameliorate some of the worst aspects, obviously not all of them, as we saw at Standing Rock, um, but we cannot really change it until we really change it systemically. And that means understanding it from a completely different perspective. And that's what my book, Standoff, attempts to do. I'm sort of reprogramming the American brain. <laughs> that, yeah, that, and, uh, introducing so that. actually have a meaningful discussion and maybe meaningful, um, actually, you know, be able to enforce these treaties. I think that until Americans understand that Native nations are not, these aren't just parks, although, of course, they are delineated that way on the maps, um, you know, Native nations as sovereign nations have a political status higher than states, right? Exactly. They can't enter into treaties, right? Uh, I mean, only sovereign, only the federal government can enter into treaties on behalf of, of all of the states. So, you know, a Native nation like the Navajo Nation, which exists, with inside uh, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, and is the size of Ireland, yeah. and has the population yeah. of Iceland, and is larger than 22 member states in the UN, you know, is a nation within the United States. I mean, imagine that Iceland was inside the United States, and we didn't even know it was there. So... For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Radio KUCI. This is Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba. My guest is Jacqueline Keeler, Adine, Ehangtoan. I'm always clobbering this. Ehangtoan? Yeah. It's, it's, you can say uh, the, the name of the tribe, the English name is Yankton Sioux. Okay. Uh, but uh, in our own language, Sioux. it's Ehangtoan I'd rather say Ehangtoan Dahoda. Yeah. And a writer and an activist. And we're talking about, I mean, it's a really clear sort of metaphor for us to understand those two different algorithms. And I'm guessing that we need, I think we want you, we want others like you to get inside that white supremacy cabin, get that narrative really intimately conveyed with 
with receptive ears and and move this on out because it's our planet i mean our our peep our society is is in peril but our but the and the health of the planet is is in dire straits that you've got the models then the the sort of mindful kind of consumption the choices one can make and this algorithm can't kick in soon enough jackie <laughs> so, yeah we are constantly in a really i mean a dangerous situation uh you know with climate change we are looking at um you know uh you know the deaths of of, of a large number of people on the planet you know and uh, we have a president who views people from those countries as you know they use use them as we a, a word i can't use you can't you know, use on the radio on no. but you know it really does uh, is reminiscent of the language of i think have you ever read uh, that book about white people and uh, the idea that there's this whole concept that exists that comes out of um, Europe of certain people as being waste people, waste people, garbage people. Do you know what I mean? Uh, white trash. Oh, the book is called White Trash. That's what it's called. And uh, um, the idea that some people are disposable. Well, and that's you know? the problem. That is what's playing out is specific when you've talked about the flooding at the Yankton Sioux Reservation. There have been recurrent severe storms, I think, since April of this year. And uh, March, yeah. March this year. So talk to us about what the governor is not helping out with any National Guard assistance during this disaster and damage. Everything is being damaged. You're, like you're saying, being treated like trash. The, not just the infrastructure, not just the ruined personal property, but this displacement and the public health toll on everybody. Talk, uh, Bring us up to speed on that, Jackie. Yeah, I've been. I've written a couple of articles, and I'm working on a third right now. I wrote an article in Indian Country Day in late September, and another in October in Sierra Magazine about uh, the flooding on my my father's reservation, his hometown of Lake Andes, um, on the Yankton Sea Reservation. And after my um, family lost their land along the river, the Missouri River at White Swan, some many years later, they built a housing, uh, a tribal housing authority called the White Swan Housing. And it was actually built in a floodplain. And oh. so uh, those houses are underwater. And in March, a bomb cyclone hit uh, the Great Plains and, uh, and dumped a lot of, created a lot of flooding and flooded those homes, about 64 homes. And, and so those, those, those folks were underwater, basically, until, uh, you know, and then uh, the entire, basically until now, they're still underwater. And, um, and they were hit by another 11 inches of rain in oh. mid-September. And um, they had, um, they've lost, all their roads are flooded out. They had uh, rebuilt one of the roads. Uh, the state did do that. But it was open only for two weeks before it was flooded out again. And this this is a full-on disaster. I, I imagine most listeners aren't even aware of this taking place. And this, again, is what I'll call out the opportunity cost, the hazards of unnecessary drama coming out of the, the national leadership picture that, you know, right and left, like this, this whole, well... Name name your uh, crisis that's coming out of the White House that takes uh, everyone's attention off of what our fellow humans are trying to to survive in a, a very severe disaster situations and the cascading effects being uh, in the public health that one there are there's their winter clothing that's been destroyed in the basements where these houses are flooded there's that issue there's the the whole mold that is now bringing on more respiratory consequences there we're missing this folks yeah when i got there um to report on it in september i found that their homes were still flooded uh, that uh, they have mold, black mold, growing um, on their walls of their homes. They're expected to clean them regularly, almost every day, with Clorox. Uh, the standing water in their basements and surrounding their homes was actually uh, tested positive for E. coli. And the children um, were, it was very difficult in the summer when it was quite hot to keep the children from playing in the water. And many of them had ringworm and impetigo and, oh um, and also pink eye. And, um, and with the uh, breathing the black mold, uh, many of them got pneumonia and were on nebulizers. And so um, it was several, um, about eight of the homes have been condemned. And the, one of the families, one of the, well, there was a household that was moved to, uh, the tribe had, has been rehabbing meth houses. 
that is the real mm. problem on the reservation. Ugh. And so they had rehabbed some houses, and they had moved two young women who were, you know, um, raising children uh, and renting a home from the tribe. And they had moved them to this rehab meth housing. And um, the day before Halloween, uh, that house exploded and killed one of the uh, young women and her three-year-old. And, um, and the other one, uh, the other young woman, uh, Mia Fisher, survived, but she had 20% burns on her body. And there, an- another young woman was there, and she had just picked up the baby and was getting ready. She'd warned them all to leave because the air was quite murky. And, um, and she had picked up the baby, and she was blown out of the house with the baby, <sighs> the one-year-old, and they survived. So it was, uh, there was a propane leak. It's not sure they're still doing um the fire marshal hasn't released a report and i was i was there covering that when i was there last and and yeah it's just really i mean it's one these folks have had to deal with a lot and they aren't getting support in dealing with it and these are people who don't have a lot of resources i also interviewed a uh, the wife uh, a man who had returned uh to his flooded housing uh and uh and he had just gone through an organ transplant surgery and he oh had goodness. to live in that mold. So their their fridge was full of mold. He, they had to live in those conditions, and they still are living in those conditions. And it has sent him to the hospital. She, uh, they had to replace their vehicle twice. The, the main roads, the paved roads are flooded out, so they have to drive a long distance on a, um, a non-paved road, which is ruining their vehicles. Um, many of these people don't have vehicles either, so they have to walk quite a ways and then walk along the freeway even the children coming back from school are you know sometimes have to walk along the freeway you know it's just it's astounding the lack of support i mean as you mentioned the governor refused to um, call out the national guard to help them the national guard is located on the reservation in the town of wagner uh, less than 20 miles away and uh and it specializes in water disasters and has plenty of equipment to help them She's and they're not coming that in late in early October, uh, you know, Trump had an issue, issued a second emergency declaration for um, over 25 counties in South Dakota, but did not include the county, uh, Charles Mix County, that the Yankton Sioux Reservation is in. It did no. not include the Yankton Sioux Reservation. So it's, um, they've been overlooked and, um, and not receiving help and, yeah, not being reimbursed either. The tribes have spent uh, over $100,000 trying to uh, keep up with roads and has not been reimbursed either from the there's the been there's been no help at all no i mean it's just it, it's, we uh after i wrote the article um some uh one of a tribe came forward the san manuel tribe and has offered help the uh, we they also they have an amazon prime list and they've been getting items through that the community has a wish list but uh, mostly they've been getting some donations from local churches of of bottled water and and used clothing well, it's it's sort of like a, uh, a it's a continuation of the smallpox infested blankets being exchanged with the native peoples hundreds of years ago, and it's sort of like here's the black mold sitting in the homes and undermining a thriving household. And and there is also I'm going to call out the the epidemic of domestic violence and the rate in which. Native American women, they're disappearing. What is, what is the, the circumstance there? They're disappeared? And yeah, what's uh, happening? The, uh, the, the hashtag is MMIW and, or MMIWG, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And um, I've written on the topic for High Country News. I covered the search for Olivia Lone Bear on the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota. Their reservation is, um, occupies one-third of the Bakken oil fields there. Okay. And her body um, was sadly found in a submerged truck last summer. And Oof. so actually, I think 2018. And, um, but they, but they, the FBI only recently last week, this past week, actually released the results and found that she was in the passenger seat of the vehicle submerged under water. But um, what is happening but to them? Circumstances yeah, circumstances like what has happened at White Swan uh, leaves uh, all of you know. There's over a hundred children that live in in these in these housing, and leaves them at risk for trafficking, for homelessness. All of these are factors that lead Native children to be 
you know, to become a victim. Certainly, um, also South Dakota has an extremely high rate of taking Native children uh, from their homes and placing them in white homes to this day. I mean, to this uh, day, NPR did a, a, quite a large um, expose on that, um, I think, back in 2014, I want to say, and, and they're and they profiting off of it. They, they get 90000 per child that they take in federal dollars. That sounds um, like a so colonial. It's a quite a lot of income for the state to take Native children and place them in white. They won't place them in um, approved Native foster homes. Uh, they, they tend to place them in white homes. And, and, and then sort of foster children, you are at greater risk because they lack resources when they um, are aged out of the system, and they are sometimes abused in these homes. So it's a lot of factors, um, and... Uh, and, and also covering um, the, the name of my article about Olivia Lone Bear was, was a, I called it, um, no crime scene. Because when her family, the Lone Bears, tried to file a uh, missing persons claim, they were told by the actual tribal police that because there was no crime scene, they couldn't file a missing persons report. Oh, my God. And uh, so all along the way there, you know, there's not a lot of, they don't take these um, things seriously. There's not a lot of, they're, they're kind of unwilling to, re, uh, to look into, you know, um, these things. And so often the families are left, you know, trying to push these cases forward, get attention to them, and, and you know, get enough community help to, do, to conduct the searches themselves, which should be conducted by, you know, actual law enforcement. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. This algorithm is, is way out of control. It's, it's devouring people. Yeah, colonial. Well, I think, you know, I, I in my piece, I, I wrote a piece about Thanksgiving um, many years ago. It's called Thanksgiving, a Native American View. And, you know, I talk a lot about what it means to be part of a, a group who had inside knowledge of what happened, what really happened when those poor, tired masses came to our homes. And, and you know, I try to, you know, for me, one of the things that is, is really very powerful about being a writer and having you know, um, access to family stories um, from both sides of my family, from uh, the Diné Navajo side and also from the Dakota, uh, you know, uh, Yankton Sioux side, is that these stories, particularly these oral stories, give me a pathway to feel empowered, you know, in a way that often when uh, white people retell our stories, it's incredibly disempowering, you know. And so, and and when I was speaking at that oral history conference, I, I, I... gave that lecture in order, kind of in a counterpoint to the one that was given right before mine, to kind of show in the ways in which we use our oral histories to empower us. You know, when I hear about how the stories from my family of how we survived, how we succeeded even, you know, it, it tells me that I can do these things too. You can't just tell our children negative stories, because then they believe in that's all that's possible, right? Right, you know, right. and um, and so the positive stories that are in my family are things that, you know, I mean, when my mother sent me to school uh, in kindergarten, she said, you know, they're going to tell you that Indian people are drunks, that Indian people are all these things, but don't listen to them. I'm going to tell you our, our history, you know, and, and also she said, look around you, look at your family. You know, that's not true. You know, all your aunts and uncles have college degrees. You know it's that's not the truth. And that's a, I mean? that's a resilience too that Angelo Baca had him on a couple of times. And when we some of us were having some issues with November twenty sixteen electoral outcomes and what was gonna happen with Bears Ears, we found it later and, and Angelo was saying, Well, you know, we've seen some bad times before. This is nothing new and so this is a Native American PSA to all of us that Times are bad, and we all have our a role to to press on and well get get on to the other the newer algorithm. Well, so, I yes, yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to read the last bit of my piece. Please to kind of do give you a sense of how we synthesize that, and and so I wrote um, in stories told by the Dakota people, an evil person always keeps his or her heart in a secret place, separate from the body. The hero must find that secret place and destroy the heart in order to stop the evil. I see in the first Thanksgiving story a hidden pilgrim heart. The story of that heart is the real tale that needs to be told. What did it hold? Bigotry, hatred, greed, self-righteousness? We have seen the evil that it caused in the 350 years since. Um, Genocide, environmental devastation, poverty, world wars, racism. 
Where is the hero who will destroy that heart of evil? I believe it must be each of us. Indeed, when I give thanks this Thursday and I cook my native food, I'll be thinking of this hidden heart and how my ancestors survived the evil it caused. Because if we can survive with our ability to share and to give intact, then the evil and goodwill that met that Thanksgiving day in the land of the Wampanoag will have come full circle and healing can begin. Amen. What would be a Diné way of saying amen? Um, I guess, uh, or ajone. Please, please say that one more time. Ajone. Okay. Well, anyone who might be listening in Portland, they'll have the opportunity to meet Jackie at Powell's Bookstore. Is it tonight? Yes. Okay. Well, great. Well, I really appreciate a chance to make some kind of inroads on a debt that it's deeper than I can ever, I could ever measure. And I really appreciate your taking the time to be on today's show, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. My guest was Jackie Keeler, and she is a writer, an activist, and a Dine, a Hank Dakota writer, and She's considering the mythology surrounding this week's holiday, and we are going to look deep into that pilgrim's heart as we pursue this. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, Casey Gerald will be talking about the amazing things he's been writing, starting with his new memoir, There Will Be No Miracles. In the second segment, Rebecca Helm, professor at UNC Asheville, will talk about the complexities of plastic cleanup in our oceans. It's really complicated. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone, and look deep into our hearts and to, uh, onto a better algorithm. Thank you.